Father, we are here to declare that you are holy. There is none like you. You are from the beginning to the end. You are the Alpha and Omega. And Father, we just thank you for your provision, for your protection, for your presence in our lives. And Lord, right now I just pray that this message by the power of your spirit would draw us closer to you. It would give us a greater view of you. And Lord, for those that need to repent, it would cause them to repent. For those that need to receive you as Lord and Savior, I pray today would be the day of their salvation. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who lived, who died, was raised so we could have eternal life. In whose name I pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated and welcome. And children, have a great class this morning. As usual, be nice to your teachers. So um, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, if you would, and find your way to Exodus chapter 17, Exodus 17. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one of the black Bibles in front of you. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. It's part of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law. The first 14 chapters of Exodus recount Israel's time in Egypt with the majority of that time being in slavery. But then you get to chapter 15, and they've now been delivered out of bondage, out of slavery. But this was a time in which they had to learn to walk with God. They had to learn to depend upon God, to fear God, and to submit to his ways. And the fact is, God would take them through times of testing to see what was in their heart. And when you get to the end of the wilderness journey you get to the Jordan River. And in Deuteronomy, which is the second law, which Moses recounted, he looked back at the years and he spoke to the people of Israel. And he said this in Exodus, or excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 8. He said, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. It was God who led you. That he might humble you. God will take us through times of humbling I think many of us have experienced that, testing you to know what was in your heart. Now, did God need to know what was in our heart? No, the testing was just help us to see what was in our heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. So that's Deuteronomy chapter 8. But they still had about 38 years or 39 years of wilderness wandering. So that's when we get to Exodus 17, there's still a lot of testing in front of them. In fact, we saw last week how the Lord had led them into Rephidim, where they encountered a couple crises. We talked about the fact that when we go through a crisis, how will we respond? We will go through crises, but the question is, how will we respond? So the big idea of the message last week and again this week is this. In a crisis, will you respond to the Lord in faith or look to yourself in despair? How will you respond? So I want to give a quick review of last week's message in about two minutes. First of all, you will experience crises within you. And we talked about the fact that it's a heart issue. Now, look again at verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. Now, Rephidim means a place of rest. 
but there was no water for the people to drink. So they go from a place of water, the wilderness of sin, now to Rephidim, where there is no water. The Lord has led them there. They have led them, he has led them into this crisis. How would they respond? Well, we saw last, year, last week, not well. In fact, let me put this up on how the response was. First of all, they demanded God's provision. There was no water. And they said, give us water to drink. It wasn't like crying out to God in prayer. It was just like a demand. Secondly, they questioned God's protection. In in verse 3, they they said, did you bring us here so we could just die in the wilderness? They were questioning God's protection. And finally, they were questioning God's presence. Verse 7, it says, they, they were saying, is the Lord among us or not? So God told Moses to take his staff and to take the staff and to hit the rock. But we, we saw how, how the Lord said, I'm going to go and stand next to the rock. And they took that rod of judgment and they struck the rock and outflowed water. And we, we saw that as a type of Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, that Jesus was the rock in the wilderness. And the fact is, he stood in our place. He took the judgment that we deserved. It's a picture of the cross that he became sin who knew no sin that we might receive the righteousness of God. That that in this beautiful picture, this type, that he stood before the people. And we talked about the fact that we're the ones that are called to stand before the Lord. He's not called to stand before us. But it was in that moment that he stood before the people and he took the punishment that we deserved on the cross. And he was raised on the third day and When he was struck, he provided us with living water. It's the picture of the cross. And the fact is, because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, we never have to question his presence, his provision, or his protection again. So when we experience a crisis, we can respond to the Lord in faith. That's the first crisis. Here's the second crisis. You will experience crises around you. They're just going to happen around you. Again, how are we going to respond? Well, we see this second crisis starting in verse 8. Follow along as I read it. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joseph did as, excuse me, so Joshua did as Moses told him. And fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and the people and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So what I want to do is I want to ask and answer five questions from this passage I think there's a lot we can learn from it. But first of all, who's Amalek? Well, Amalek is the grandson of Esau. 
Now, if you know your Genesis history, you know that, that, that Esau was the twin brother of Jacob. Esau was the firstborn, but we know that Jacob, the deceiver, stole the birthright and the blessing from his brother Esau. And that crazed a, a, created a great rift uh, uh, um, between them. But the Amalekites, those that were of Amalek's heritage, were nomads. They were like Bedouin nomads, and they, they inhabited the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula, and they were a brutal people. In fact, Deuteronomy 25 tells us this. When Moses, looking back over their time in the wilderness, he says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came up out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Now, I want to stop there for a minute. There's a lot here. He says, remember what Amalek did to you. What did they do? When they came up out of Egypt, remember there were, could have been up to 2 million people. It says they attacked you on the way uh, when you were faint and weary. So when you were your weakest, they attacked you. They cut off your tail. The backside, who was on the backside? Those that were lagging, those that were hurting, those that were infirm. It could have been kids. It could have been older people. It could have been those that were crippled. And they came in and they, they cut them off. They, they attacked them. And Amalek didn't fear God. It's a very dangerous place to be not to fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies, so when you go into the promised land, then I have a job for you. I want you to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So this is a, this is a big moment for Israel as they're reminded what they're required to do. So we're introduced to Amalek effectively as the first enemy against Israel. Now, the question is, why would they attack Israel? Well, maybe they didn't want too many people drinking their water. But they were a thorn in Israel's side. Not only during the wilderness wanderings, but once they settled the land of Canaan and all the tribes settled into their portioned land, they became a problem for the nation. They became part of Saul's downfall. Who was Saul? Saul was the first king of Israel. In fact, we see in 1 Samuel 15 where Saul gave a charge, or excuse me, Samuel gave a charge to Saul. And he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Remember what they did. They cut off the tail. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. He says, wipe them out. Wipe them out. They are an enemy of Israel. So Saul gets 200,000 men, and he goes and attacks Amalek. And he, it's, a, it's a great battle. But what we find is that he left Agag alive. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. Plus, he kept all the animals that were the best of the animals alive. And then when he was challenged by it, guess what he did? He blamed it on the people. He didn't take responsibility. He just blamed it on everybody else around him. 
And, and, and ultimately, the kingdom was torn away from him. He says, but I've, I've kept the best so we could sacrifice to the Lord. And the Lord told him, and I would encourage you to read 1 Samuel 15 this week. He says, God doesn't care about your sacrifices. He wants your obedience. He cares about your obedience. See, partial obedience is what? It's disobedience. So, he didn't completely strike them out of the nation. But then we see that Amalek rears his ugly head again in chapter 30. David is now fleeing from Saul. He's been anointed as king. It says, now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites, there they are again, had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They'd overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all were who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Horrific. They, they, they should have dealt with it in the past, but they didn't. And now Amalek rears his ugly head again. And, and in, in fact, the people wanted to stone David. And it's like David was just leading them into, into battle. But we see in, in, in verse 6, it's not up here, how, how David strengthened himself in the Lord. And then he had a great battle against them and beat Amalek. Amalek is a picture of sin in our lives. If we don't destroy sin, sin will destroy us. If we don't kill sin, sin will kill us. Let me ask you, what sin do you need to kill? Because if you don't destroy it, it's going to rear its ugly head. And it's going to come after you. At some point, it will. They'd been delivered from Egypt. And now they needed to wage war against their enemy. It's, it's a, once again, it's a reminder to us. Christ, through his life, death, burial, resurrection on the cross, has delivered us out of bondage, out of slavery. There was nothing we needed to do to accomplish that other than put our faith in Christ. But now there's a battle before us. We have to, we have to fight sin. We, and, and the fact is we know, according to um, Ephesians chapter 6, that we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities and powers. And, and so there's a spiritual battle we must fight. And what's going to happen is Satan will attack us where we're, where we're weakest. He'll look for the place and the time when we're most vulnerable, when we're isolated, when there's a crisis in our family. It could be a family issue. It could be a marriage issue. It could be health or it could be a job. And when we're, when we're at our weakest, like Amalek, Satan will come in and he'll take us out. That's why we're so... That's why we're so intentional about not letting people be isolated. So Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 6 to fight the good fight. Look at Exodus chapter 17, verse 9. It says, well, I'll go back again to 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. It's the same place in which they cried out for water. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. 
So that brings us to the second question. Who is Joshua? Who is Joshua? Well, it's the first time that he's mentioned here, but he was like Moses' aide de camp. He was the support for Moses all the way through the wilderness journey. He would have been like Alexander Hamilton was to George Washington. I mean, Alexander Hamilton wrote all of George's letters. He, he helped with all of the battles. He was right there by his side. In fact, if you ever want to read a great biography, read both Hamilton's biography and read Washington's biography. Anyway, Moses taps Joshua to lead the military. And we know that Moses would ultimately pass the baton of leadership to Joshua. We see that in Joshua chapter 1, where, where Moses died, and now Joshua is called to lead the nation. Joshua was also one of the 12 spies that were called to go in and spy out the nation at Kadesh Barnea. It was Joshua and Caleb, and then there was 10 others. Now, only two of them gave a good report. It was Joshua and it was Caleb because they understood the power of God. Where the rest of them, they, all they could see was what they could see, and they just like, they feared. And we know that Joshua, his name used to be Hosea, which means salvation. But we see in Numbers 13, let me put it up there, it says that these were the names of the men who Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. And Joshua means Jehovah is salvation. It's also the name Jesus. So he and Caleb return with this great report. So here Moses tells Joshua to build, a, uh, to build an army. Now think about it. For the last 400 years, they've not fought a war. They've just been slaves. But now they're called to battle. There must have been something about Joshua his leadership abilities, his, his ability to lead, to lead men, that he was tapped. And so we see here that Joshua does his part. But notice what Moses does. Verse 9, he says, Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. What he's saying, the same staff in which I struck the rock and gave the nation water, the same staff that parted the Red Sea, God's staff, he's I'm going to take on top of the hill. I want you to notice what's not happening. Verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on top of the hill. What is not happening here is it is not let go and let God. Okay, we're just going to get on our couch and we're going to watch God win this battle. Going back to what I said earlier, there's nothing we have to do to earn our salvation. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. It is a gift of God, lest anyone boast. But once we've received Christ, we now are in a battle. We, we are called to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And, and so what you see here is, is Joshua doing his part and Moses doing his part. It's different than Exodus chapter 14 where they were told just to stand back and watch the salvation of the Lord. Now God is going to use man to accomplish his will. Joshua was going to be in the battle, but what was Moses doing? He was praying. He took the staff of God. 
and, and a picture of the Old Testament. You see it all throughout the Old Testament. When they would raise their hands, it was a sign of dependence. It was a sign of surrender. It was a sign of, I need you. And so Moses was going to intercede on behalf of Joshua. Now, did God need Joshua to defeat Amalek? No. But God uses people to do his will, to accomplish his will. So we must be available. This is a picture of prayer, what Moses is doing. So let me just ask the third question. What do we learn about prayer? Well, prayer is an appeal to God for help, for his intervention. It's saying, God, I, am, I need you. I'm dependent upon you. And not only did God need physical action, but he needs spiritual action, which is prayer. And notice that Moses is not alone. He goes up on the hill with Aaron and her. Aaron was his brother, her. Scripture doesn't tell us who her was, not him, her, him, her, they, them. I won't go there. Sorry. Her, H-U-R. Some believe that her was married to Miriam, Moses's sister, but scripture is silent on that. But we learn some important lessons. Before I put that up, let me just look at verses 11 and 12. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. This teaches us four lessons on prayer. First one, I'll put them all up. Prayer works. Prayer works. Prayer works. Moses put up his hands. Joshua was defeating Amalek. He dropped his hands. Amalek was defeating Joshua. Puts up his hands, Joshua. Puts down his hands, Amalek. You wonder if at some point he says, let me see how this works. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> Joshua yelling up, would you cut it out? I, I don't know if that happened. But, but the fact is, prayer works. Do you pray? But not only does prayer work, prayer can be hard work. Look at verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary. His hands grew weary. He became weary in prayer. Have you ever prayed to the point where you are weary? Because it's hard work. Crying out to God. Crying out to God for your kids. Crying out to God for your, for your marriage. Prayer takes time. It takes intentionality. In fact, Paul in Colossians chapter uh, 4 verse 2, he says, he, he says um, to continue steadfastly in prayer, don't give up. We see Jesus was a beautiful picture of prayer. He would get up early in the morning and go off into the wilderness and pray. Mark chapter 1 verse 35. Luke 18 1, he tells us to pray and not to lose heart. Think about his prayer. He, he prayed drops, of, he, he sweated drops of blood when, he was, when Jesus was praying in the uh, garden. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says to pray without ceasing. Prayer can be hard work, but prayer works. But third, prayer is not an isolated work. 
This shows the, in fact, look again at verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it underneath him, some sort of a, a stone where he could sit, take a break. And Moses was in his 80s at this point. And then Aaron and her held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other. It's a beautiful picture of interceding for others, helping others in prayer, crying out to others in prayer. What keeps us from asking other people to help us to pray? Pride. It's, it's like, we, I don't want to bother people. It's like, no, pray. In fact, one of the things I would encourage you is like, if you need prayer, pray. We have somebody up. We have people up here at the end of each service. We, we want you to come up and, and, and to be prayed over and to be prayed for. That's why we read your prayer requests every week. And not to, don't just read them. We pray over them. We can say, no, I'm good. I, I'm, I don't need it. But prayer works. And we may not be able to fight like Joshua, but we can pray like Moses and we can support those that are praying like Aaron and her did. And it reminds us when we pray that the battle belongs to whom? The Lord. Finally, pray is an on, prayer is an ongoing work. Notice what it says in verse 12. At the end, it says, so his hands were steady until going, the going down of the sun. I mean, he just continued all day in prayer. He understood the importance of prayer. The fact that it was just an ongoing work. Don't lose heart. Keep praying. Do you have a child who's a prodigal? Pray. Do you have a spouse that's walking from the Lord? Pray. Pray. See, when you pray, you're saying, I need you, God. But when you don't pray, what are you saying? God, I got this. I, I don't need you. I'm good. What we're saying is we believe more in the power of self than in the power of God. How's that working out? That's why abiding is so important. John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. It's the idea of clinging to the vine, being connected to the vine, because if we don't, we're not going to bear fruit. And Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 7, he says, if, if, if my word abides in you and you abide in me, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Because all of a sudden now we're so connected to the vine that we're praying what God would want us to pray. We're not praying anything that's selfish. The fact is, if Moses had not prayed and Joshua had won the battle, Joshua would become very focused on what he could do. His self-sufficiency, his self-dependence. Self and maybe somebody would say, great job, Joshua, winning that battle. He would go, oh, it was all the Lord. But he would probably know in his heart that that was a sham. Because it's easy to say that's Christianese. We can say that as Christians. But were we really praying? Was it really the Lord? Or was it me just using my gifts and talents? Joshua learned the importance of dependence on God so that when the greater battles came, and they did, he depended upon the Lord. Because see, God will continue to test us to see what's in our heart. Prayer is hard work. I was thinking about what are reasons we don't pray. 
I think one of them is because it is hard work. But, but secondly, it just opposes our flesh. You know, if we, if, that's why Galatians 5.16 says, walk in the spirit, you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. It, it could be that we just don't believe in the power of prayer. Or maybe we don't have time. The fact is we don't have time not to pray. Or maybe we've tried it and it just didn't seem to work. That's why I think it was Spurgeon that said, pray until you pray. Meaning, pray until you're really communicating with God. Until, until God's just like you're having a conversation. God tells us we're to come to him boldly. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. When, when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain, the veil uh, uh, separating the holy place to the holy of holies that was torn from top to bottom, and, and we're told, then let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the, uh, of help in, in the time of need. We can come boldly to him. And so Moses understood the power of prayer. Look at the results, verse 13, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Victory. So, brings us to the fourth question. What do we learn about walking in victory? Well, Israel's victory over Amalek involved four elements. I think this is really helpful for us. The first is God's power in heaven. It reminds us that God's, God is in heaven and he has all the power. Secondly, it reminds us that we must participate on the battlefield. That we, like, like we just, like I said before, we just can't let go and let God. We have to participate in the battle. We, we have to put on the full armor of God every day. We must do all that we can to stand Third, it's a reminder of the importance of intercession on top of the hill. We need to be praying. We need other people to be praying. And fourth, reminds us of the importance of community to hold us up, to hold up our arms. Think about it. If Moses, God's friend, the Bible tells us, if Moses, probably the greatest leader in the nation of, of, of Israel in history, if he needed others to hold up his arms, how much more do we? And that's why being connected in church, being connected in small group is so important. You got people to come alongside you, hold up your arms. You know, I, I'm really thankful for the, the men and women in this church that come alongside and hold our arms up. God has moved in amazing ways these last couple of years here. And it's because of the prayers of our people. That now brings us to the fifth and final question. Why was Moses commanded to record this event? Now, you have to think that Moses and Joshua would have remembered that day. A great battle, great victory, the Amalekites were beaten. But how many of us remember what we had for lunch four days ago? Like we forget. And so write it down. 
Pam comes to every one of my messages and she writes, takes notes on every message. Like when we used to have three services, she would do that. I was like, what, really? But like she didn't want to forget. I mean, I love my wife and she's good at that. But, but the fact is we, we, we write it down so we won't forget. It's a reminder that scripture is inspired by God, 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's a reminder that nobody, that, that, that this is the word of God. In fact, look at 1 Peter, or 2 Peter chapter 1. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what's going on here. We see the, the first call to write down Scripture. And Moses said to the Lord, and then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Write it down so Joshua knows. So the rest of the nation will know. See, there's two things we can do with history. We can learn from it and grow or we can ignore it and be destined to repeat the same mistakes over and over again which we know is insanity. See, learning from the past may be hard, but continuing in ignorance and ignorance can be very painful. That's why Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, now he's, he's talking about actually the wilderness wanderings. He says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So we won't fall in the same trap that, that they did. Like write these things down. So we then now have this, so we, we, it can confront us in our sin, so we don't make the same mistakes others did. He says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So not only did Moses record these events as a memorial, but he built an altar Something they could remember. They would, they, would, they would build an altar. It was called an Ebenezer. They would raise an Ebenezer. Look at verse 15. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my banner. Saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This was an altar. It was not to Moses. It was not to Joshua. It was not for the nation of Israel. It was an altar to the Lord. It was, a, it was an altar that they could worship the Lord. And they built a banner. He called it Jehovah Nisi. So what's a banner? The banner is, it's, it's like a flag. It's a military pole. It's a, a standard. It's got, it's got some... Um, fabric on it, and it'll have a seal of the nation. The soldiers would look to their banner. It would remind them of who they belong to. It would remind them of their identity, that they belong to Israel. It would help them keep their bearings. It gave them courage and hope in the battle. And looking to the banner would remind them that the battle was not lost it was the Lord's. Do you know as Christians, we have a banner? Our banner is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our banner. And, and, and we, when, when we're in the battle, we look to the Lord. 
the empty cross, the empty tomb. It's, it's, it's what we look to. It's a reminder that the battle's not lost. In fact, the battle's been won. We're not living from de- towards for victory. We're living from victory. And the fact is, Amid all this cultural confusion, we keep our bearings by looking to the cross. We look to Jesus. He's our, he's our standard. So often, we can get overwhelmed. That's why we need brothers and sisters to say, you've got to look back at the cross. Go back to Jesus. Keep your eyes on the Lord. The one who was raised, the one who died in our place. Looked at Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is our banner. And so whenever we come under attack, which we will, we look to the cross, the empty cross. We look to Christ who is raised, and that gives us courage to fight the battles that are before us. And when we look to the banner, we now, when the crisis comes, we can respond to the crisis in faith. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. This must have been, for the nation of Israel, an incredible celebration. It's the first time they've been in a battle. Like, they're not warriors. They were slaves. Yet, in the midst of it, they saw... Joshua fighting the battle. They saw Moses with his arms raised towards the Lord. And and then they saw that banner and they realized who they were and whose they were. And it gave them, it gave them, it gave them incredible energy and encouragement for the battle that was before them. And we have that same encouragement. Amen. Now, for some of you right now, Maybe you've been living your life really separated from God. You've not been praying. You've not been dependent upon the Lord like you know you need to be. I would just encourage you, even just in this time, ask God to forgive you of that. Say, God, I just want to be dependent upon you. I I want to be like Moses up on the hill with my arms raised dependent on you. Some of you, you've not destroyed Amalek. Sin is continuing in your life, and you need to route it out. You need to destroy Amalek before Amalek destroys you. Because it will. Maybe there's some of you that have never received Jesus as Lord and Savior. Look to the standard. Look to Jesus Christ, the one who took your place on the cross, that died in your place and was raised on the third day. The Bible tells us if you... If you, it, that everyone that calls upon the Lord will be saved. That means you turn from your sin and you turn to Jesus Christ as your only hope for eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder that the battle is yours, that we don't fight for victory, but we fight from victory. And Lord, we can rejoice in that. And Lord, when the crisis comes, thank you for the fact that we can look to Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is our banner. We can be reminded of who we are in Christ. We can be reminded of, of where we are. The fact that the battle is yours.
So Lord, thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.